it's a joy when the church uh, throughout Madison gets together uh, to celebrate and to worship. And, um, you know, Good Friday is one of the most important days on the church calendar. It's the day that we get a chance to stop and reflect what the crucifixion of Jesus Christ means for, for all of us. And that's what I want to do for the next 25 minutes is discuss what I think is a very important fundamental theological question, which is why did Jesus have to die? One of the things that has intrigued me about this particular question um, as I've studied the scriptures to try to find an answer to it is that it is essentially the question that Jesus uh, asked of his father on two separate occasions. The first time was on the night uh, he was handed or actually he allowed himself to be handed over to the Jewish authorities um, when his traitorous disciple, you recall Judas, uh, for 30 pieces of silver betrayed him. And on that particular night at the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the scriptures tell us that Jesus fell on his knees. And um, he says um, at that particular occasion, um, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. When he talks about this cup, this is the Old Testament metaphor for the cup of God's wrath upon sinners. He says, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And what's particularly interesting about him um, asking the Father uh, to take this cup fr from him is that on three separate occasions uh, in the Word of God, three distinct times, he has been preparing his disciples for his crucifixion. He tells them very specifically in very plain language, listen, I'm gonna be handed over to the Jewish authorities I'm going to be beaten, flogged, handed over to the Romans, killed, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Very clearly, very plain language. The disciples, though, they couldn't understand it. In fact, Peter once rebuked him. But nonetheless, it was clear he knew where he was going. It was clear he knew why he was going. Um, his disciples couldn't grasp it. But even with that, even a second time, Jesus is hanging on the cross, having been turned over to Pilate. Pilate turned him over to, ex to the executioners, and he is crucified there on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here Jesus experiences the absence of the presence of God on the cross near the very end of his life. So we must ask ourselves why these things are so. Why does Jesus willingly accept the wrath of God the Father? Why is the, the presence of God absent when, when Jesus feels as though he needs him most? It must be that at the cross of Jesus Christ, that something essential about the nature of God is revealed. We've got to be able to learn about God from the experience of the cross. So my goal this afternoon is to demonstrate that on the cross, God is revealing to us his essential qualities of his holiness, his mercy, and his justice, and how they relate to our desperate need for a remedy for sin. As I studied this question, I concluded that one of the best places to demonstrate this 
This character of God, the essential nature of God, is the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. In particular, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law. I think that's one of the best places that we can look. I believe that if we look carefully there, we can see references to why Jesus had to die on the cross. So I want to focus my attentions on Exodus 33 and 34 in terms of the story. You remember that Moses in the midst of, of pleading with God for the people because the people have worshiped a false God. While Moses was up on the mountain with God for 40 days, the people came to Aaron and said, you know, he must be dead. He's, he's gone. Build us a God. Create for us a God who, brought, who will have brought us out of Egypt. And I believe Aaron was a bit intimidated, maybe fearful. For that reason, he takes their gold and forms an idol of, of gold for the folks. While Moses is up on the getting the Ten Commandments that God is writing with his own hand, God turns to him and says, your people have turned once again to weakness. Get down from here and go and find out what's going on. Go set the situation straight. Moses takes the two tablets, goes down from Mount Sinai, hears sounds in the camp, sees the people partying and, and sacrificing to their golden calf. Not many weeks have passed since they have been delivered across the Red Sea, since, they, since the Egyptians have been, been killed and plundered. Not, not every day they've received manna from God, and here they, they are, with just a few days of absence from Moses, they've turned to rebellion and wickedness. And Moses, in his disgust and frustration, throws down the tablets and, and breaks them. They've broken the law, and now, kind of symbolically, Moses breaks the law in front of them. Moses begins to set the, the record straight. At the end of time, God has saw fit to uh, kill probably the most vile idolaters by plague and some by sword. And Moses is trying to mediate for the people. He's pleading with God. He says, God, don't abandon us here in the midst of the desert. Don't you know that if we die in the desert back in Egypt, they'll be laughing. They'll be saying all that occurred is they went out into the desert to be killed. They would have at least lived with us. And so God listens to Moses. Quite frankly, God orchestrates the situation so that Moses steps up as the mediator for the people. This is exactly what God wants of Moses. And God is very pleased with Moses. Though the people are rebellious, he's pleased with Moses. And God, Moses recognizes this. And he says to God, if, you, if I found favor in your sight, tell me more about you. I wanna, I wanna continue to walk in, in, in favor. Teach me your ways. And then he says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. How many of us today want to experience the glory of God, wants to, want to know more intimately the God that we serve? This is the kind of person that Moses was. He wanted to know God more intimately. And it's an interesting thing. When we seek God, he is faithful to to. to recognize our needs and he wants us to know more of him. He wants us to be holier. He, he wants us to live more righteously. He wants us to experience the blessed Christian life. He wants people like us to want him, to serve him, to seek him. Amen? Are you that kind of a Christian today? On Good Friday, 
that seeks God with your whole heart and soul, that wants to see God's glory? So God says to him, I'm going to have all my goodness pass before you. Now, when he talks about his goodness here, he's not talking about the exhaustive, his, all of his exhaustive attributes. In fact, the scriptures tell us that it is impossible for us, as we are, to know God fully. What he's saying when he says to Moses that I'm going to have my goodness pass before you is that I'm going to tell you about who I am at my core. Let me give you an example of this. I'm from Chicago. My childhood hero is Walter Payton. About 20 years ago, when I was working for American Family, we hired Walter to come in and talk to some agents that we were recruiting. And um, we, uh, we wanted Walter to speak on entrepreneurship. And Walter came and gave a dynamic presentation, and I'll never remember this. Some of you recall that Walter died probably not even at age 50 from cancer. And this was about maybe four or five years prior to his death. I just remember what a great speaker he was. I, I remember how much he loved people. I mean, I was a complete stranger to him, but you would have thought I was his best friend. For two hours, I got a chance to talk with Walter, to get to know him a bit. Those folks that we were recruiting enjoyed him. But you know, I really couldn't say at the end of that two hours' time, even though he left a tremendous impression on me, that I really knew the heart of the man. So what God is saying to Moses is, listen, I've chosen you as my prophet. I, I'm the one who reached out and, and called you. I'm the one that's been walking with you uh, across the Red Sea. I'm the one who calls you into a tent. And the scriptures say, uh, and metaphorically, that he speaks to him face to face. I'm the one, and I'm going to tell you about my essential self. You're going to know me better than you've ever known me in your life. So the first thing that he says to him is this. He tells him what his name is. He says that his name is Jehovah, the self-existing God. He is the God who always, he is the God who is. He's the God who always was. He's the God who always will, will be. He is the supreme ruler over all creation. When we think about this reality of God, his, 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 his supremeness, his eternality, we have to conclude that at the cross of Jesus Christ, on that, that day when Jesus needed him the, the most, the self-existing God was very much in control. It looked like it was a disaster. It looked like all hope was lost, but not for the supreme ruler. Certainly he had a plan that transcended the cross for his people. He's the self-existing supreme God in control of the past, the present, and the future. God's grace. God tells Moses first and foremost that he is merciful and compassionate to whomever he wants, whenever he wants to be. In other words, he says, I am sovereign. I answer to no one and I am, it's my nature to be loving and forgiving. That's kind of cool, isn't it? God is free to bless you at any time and in any place. Have you ever considered that some of the prophets, some of the people that we call the heroes of the faith are some of the biggest scoundrels that you could ever find out? I mean, think about David and his murder 
and adultery, right? Think about Abraham and his cowardice, right? Think about Paul and the fact that he was a slayer, that he was a, a persecutor of the Christians. I could go on and on. Think about Thomas and think about hero after hero. It's just like you and me, full of weaknesses, insecurities, and fear. These are the kinds of people that our God calls to the cross and releases for eternal life. Come on, talk back with me. We serve a God that is full of grace and full of love and receives even the most humble, no good individuals. That's why I'm glad to be here today. He knew exactly <laughs> where to find me. The next thing he says is that he tells about his holiness. He tells Moses that there are certain restrictions. I'm, my goodness is gonna pass before you, but you cannot see my face. In fact, you need to hide in the cleft of a rock and euphemistically, he says he's gonna put his hands, God is a spirit, so he, he doesn't have hands and feet, but he's going to block him, right? And, he, and all, you won't be able to see me in my face because if you see my face, you will die. I kind of like the way Calvin talks about this. Speaking of this particular text, he says, it must be that God's incomprehensible brightness would bring us to nothing. There's something glorious. There's something splendid. There's, there's something, the, 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 the light, the, the glory of God transcends our ability. That's why it's okay for you to come in and worship God with all that you have. Every so often we can come into the worship service and we come together and we can experience something of the, the brilliance and the glory and the splendor of God in worship. But we can't see him now as we are, the way that he really is. His holiness and his majesty transcends our ability to fellowship with, with him in the form that he actually takes. And so this explains, I think, a little bit of why it is that Jesus experiences the forsakenness at the cross. You see, Jesus was representing all the sins of mankind and standing before a God whose holiness is transcendent. Certainly, and we, and we recognize, right, that God ultimately, is, that the, 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 the judgment against sin is the absence of the presence of God. Nothing should fear us more than if God, if this would be Ichabod, if the glory of God would depart from our souls, if the glory of God would depart from the church, that should bring us to our knees in fear. And so Jesus at the cross, when he is forsaken, experience a taste. His soul experiences the absence of his father. He didn't say, God, why are they, 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 they nailing me to the cross? He didn't say to the apostles, why are you abandoning me? But when he senses that the glory of God is somehow not present, The holiness of God. There's something about the holiness of God that makes it necessary for Jesus to have to go to the cross. The next point is man's sin nature. Now Moses was instructed to bring, to chisel out two stones and come back to the mountain to replace the ones that he destroyed. And the situation why he had to do that, of course, was the sin, the idolatry 
of the people. Now, if God at his core is merciful and compassionate, he says that in his text. He says, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I am compassionate to whom I will be compassionate. And if God is holy, that's who he is at his core, what are we like at our core? That's the question for this, for this afternoon. What are we like at our core? And so Moses is, is bringing Aaron to account, and he asks him, why? How did this happen? How is it that you made a calf for the people? And here's how he responds. He says, Moses, you know yourself that these people are prone to do evil. He says, ever since you walked us out, we, they have been rebelling against you time and time again, clamoring for water and for meat and threatening to go back to Egypt every time. You know these people are prone to evil in their hearts. In fact, the scripture tells us that after Joshua took the people into Israel, there was a saying during the time of the judges. It was a woeful saying. The people had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there's a not so subtle implication about human beings, about you and me, and it is this. At the core of our hearts is a quiet, and some, for some of us not so quiet, rejection against God and a stubborn self-centeredness. Man doesn't naturally look to his creator to find out what is good, what is beautiful, and what is pleasant. He turns inside and he determines his own course. This is, this is what humanism will lead you to. Scripture teaches that after Adam's original sin, this is the natural state of humanity. And this is what the scripture calls sin nature in Romans 7, 5. And the theologians call it total depravity. They got a it's not his pretty name, total depravity, the theologians call it. All people are inescapably predisposed to evil prior to any actual choice and unable not to sin in the ordinary activities of life. Without God, even when we seem to be doing good, our motivations are evil. So man is, at his core, wicked in contrast to a God who is merciful and just and loving. So Moses takes these two tablets up to the mountain to meet with God a second time. He's hidden in the rock and God comes down and he declares who he is to him. Here's what he says. The Lord, the Lord, this is the self-existing one both times, Jehovah. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generations. So at the very core of who God is, we see that he is overflowing with love for people and totally reliable, totally true to his word, forgiving all manner of rebellion and sin, whether it be slight offenses or gross sins, slow to anger so that sinners can repent. Love and mercy is at the core of his being. The scriptures teach us that, is that the mercy of God is the grace of God that draws us to repentance. I'm turning 50 this year. 
occasionally I'll think about some of the lowest points of my life and some of the sin in my life. And I am humbled that God con continues to forgive me again and again and again. And he's slow to anger. Have you experienced that with God? Not willing that anybody should die, willing to draw all men to repentance. That's why I love Jesus. But at the same time, he is a God of justice. I want you to pay close attention to the, to the end here, not, not to confuse this. Uh, Exodus 32, and I want to say 32, says this about God. It says that Moses comes to him and says, listen, I'll die for the people. I know that they have behaved wickedly. I know that they are idolaters. Don't wipe them out. I'll die. He said, no. He says, the one that sins, that's the one that's going to die. So what this text here at the end is saying is this. He says, if the father sins and another generation of kids roll up and if they sin and if the next generation sins, they all are going to die. But as soon as one returns to repentance, my mercy is sufficient for that one. So God is a just and a merciful God. But that seems to be a tad of a contradiction. On the one hand, we have a God who loves and is merciful to his core. And on the other hand, he must punish sin. How can it be that God can receive a, re a repentant person yet at the same time take justice seriously? How is it that love and mercy balance out with justice and righteousness? I love the way Tim Keller deals with this question in his book, The Reason for God. I commend it to you. To answer this question, he first explains what happens when a person decides to forgive someone. Here's what forgiveness means at the core. Forgiveness means bearing the cost of the sin yourself. And it is always a form of costly suffering. Let me, let me give you an example to show that this is true. So let's say you've got a 2004 Toyota Camry at home and um, it's got 100,000 miles on it, it's worth about 7,000 bucks. Now you have just liability auto insurance on this car because it's old and you're a good driver, you don't feel like you get into an accident, you got kids, you're trying to get to college, you're trying to save money. Anybody with me on this one or is it just me? <laughs> you're, you're trying to save money, you're trying to look for ways you could cut costs, you just put liability coverage on the car. A friend comes over and they want to take you out to dinner. It's about 6 o'clock. You tell your 15-year-old teenager that's in drivers, hey, listen, I'm going out for dinner with my buddy. I'll be back at 8.30. You leave. Don't think anything about it. Your teenager says, oh, my God, I get a chance to get in the car. I'm a skilled driver now. They've been teaching me classes. They get the car. They take, they take the keys. They get in the car. They go. They try to hustle back because they know you're going to be back by 8.30. She runs off the road, runs into a tree, and totals the car. The police are on the scene, the teenager's got a cell phone, they call you, crying uncontrollably, uncontrollably. Mom, I, I, I didn't mean to take the car, I, I, I totaled the car, you're, you're like, what? <laughs> right? You teenagers ought to be shuddering, don't do this, don't do this, teenagers. You find out that they're not hurt, that's your, really your first concern is, are they hurt? No, they're not hurt. Then you've got a decision to make, what am I going to do? Because if I forgive them, here's what's gonna happen. I gotta replace this $7,000 car. 
I got to figure out how I'm going to get to work tomorrow. I'm hurting. I mean, this is just an ultimate betrayal. This is ultimate rebellion. How could they be so wicked? I would have never have done something like this as a teen. Lying, right? <laughs> how could they be? But if you forgive them, not only do you lose the 7,000, you lose the right to be vindictive. You lose the right when they're 20 years old and they make you mad to say, do you remember when you did this to me before? If you'd really choose to forgive them, you lose the right, you, you incur the cost financially and emotionally. You take it all on yourself. You suck it up. But you know what? Because you love your daughter and because you want an, an, a relationship with her, a healthy relationship with her, forever you do it. You barely hardly think it's a 15-minute discussion and you decide that you're going to suck it up and, and forgive her. Let me ask you this. So should it surprise us then that when God determined to forgive us rather than punish us for all the wickedness against him and all the wickedness we do against each other, that he went to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ and died to pay the price of forgiveness himself? If a parent would do that for their 15-year-old child, God would do that for the world that he created and he loves. Isn't it true that Jesus' death is the substitute for your sins? That God's justice is maintained at the very same time that his mercy is graciously extended to the repentant souls that he loves? Isn't it true that with Jesus, God can be both merciful and just at the same time? Keller at this point says this to the skeptic. This is really important. It's crucial, he says, to remember that the Christian faith has always understood that Jesus Christ is God. So that when we talk about the Father and the Son, we are talking about one God. God then did not inflict pain on someone else. He is not a cosmic child abuser. But rather, on the cross, God absorbed the pain himself the pain and the violence and the evil of the world onto himself. God who becomes, he offers his own lifeblood to the world in order to honor moral justice and merciful love so that one day he can destroy evil without destroying us. That makes good sense, does it? So why did Jesus have to die? There was a sin debt to be paid. God himself paid it so that we could have life with him. Hallelujah. This is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It's at the very heart of the gospel. God, the son who committed no sin, took the penalty of sin on himself for the, for the sake of the repentant sinner. By faith, the sinner is declared righteous in God's sight because the son offered his life for him. I think on Good Friday, perhaps like no other day in the church calendar, it is most appropriate to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, because what, what are we doing when we celebrate communion? We are remembering the death of Christ until he returns for his church. All people of all ages who have loved the Lord and given their lives to him. I would like to invite you to spend just a few moments of quiet reflection at this time. 
And then afterwards, Pastor Dolson will come and lead us in our communion service. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are, we are so thankful for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we are happy because we have been able. Lord, we are thankful, those of us who have accepted you, that we are able to sit at the table in fellowship with you because you absorbed our debt. And you released us, Father. You declared us righteous because of the work that you've done. And even the faith that we have is not our own. It's a gift of God. We can't boast, Father. We cannot boast. We are your good work through and through. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. We ask you, Lord, that you will draw more men and women in this Madison area through the churches that are represented here, through our individual testimonies in our workplaces, in, in, at home, in our communities, Lord, where you send us, Lord, we want to be light. We want this message of your substitutionary atonement to go forward and the love and mercy that you have as, long, as well as your justice. We want it to go forward, Jesus, through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.